From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Tim Blake Nelson. He plays Wade Tillman, also known as Looking Glass, on Watchmen. Nelson talks to me about his native Oklahoma, where the HBO drama happens to be set. Well, when I was growing up in Tulsa, racism was so pervasive, it was frankly casual. And Tulsa was, at that time, as segregated a city as there was in America. That's how I grew up. I'm not proud of it, and it it has taken a lot of undoing. To say that came into play in working on Watchmen would be an understatement. It was there constantly, every day, sadly. Nelson also talks about the lessons he learned from playing a masked character and his next film project in Arkansas. And just a heads up, we recorded this interview last month before the civil unrest that's taking place all around us became a part of everyday life. And with that, here's my conversation with Tim. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Where are you doing this interview from? In my uh, apartment in New York City. How are you doing however many weeks we're now in compared to the beginning? I'm with my family, which is a wife. Um, We've been married for 26 years. Uh, We have three boys. We're all together with a few little spats that are negligible. We all get along really well. There's been a, a surfeit of communal events from playing backgammon to ping pong to watching films to eating meals together. We enjoy one another's company. I really can't complain about this experience. And I know that might sound uh, rarefied and maybe even, uh, you know, lucky. I I don't want to be ashamed of that. But at the same time, I'm completely aware that it's not most people's experience. How are you feeling about things sort of starting to pick up again? I'm about to do a film in Arkansas, and part of their COVID protocol is use of a much better test on a regular basis during the shoot. I'm sanguine about it. In fact, and I, I'm, I'm so impressed with the protocols of the producers on that film that my son, my oldest son, the 21-year-old, is going to come crew on the movie. And I put my boys before myself, so I, I'm willing to have him come and, and, and work on it uh, with me. I've been out and about a little bit in New York while observing every one of the rules. I wear the mask and, and stay six feet away from people and don't go into any establishments that are illegally receiving people, anything like that. But I have been out and about in the city a little bit just to experience that. And we made the decision, my family and I, to stay here and not flee. And and we did that because we wanted to be in New York with New Yorkers during this time. We are resolutely here. So when do you start shooting and have you been using this time sort of to prepare research for this role? Yeah, I, I've been working on it pretty much every day. It involves, it's a pretty outlandish character. He's a blind Norwegian bartender slash butcher in 1866. 
And I think that the only thing worse than a blind bartender, at least in terms of the clientele, would be a blind butcher. <laughs> uh, but this is a pretty <laughs> this is a pretty strange high concept horror movie. And it's this odd little movie that really uh, interested me, and and um, I'm gonna go uh, I'm gonna go do it. Particularly given all the efforts the producers are making to to render it safe for the cast, and and I do believe that paying attention to the science and observing all safety protocols, we do need to to get back to work where we can. And when that's done in a responsible way, I'm all for it. And I believe this is an iteration of that. Do you think you'll be different on a set? Like less likely to shake someone's hand or give them a hug? Yeah, I'm going to play by the rules, just like I'm playing by the rules here. Uh, So no, I'm not going to be shaking people's hands and uh, uh, I'm going to socially distance and I'm going to wear a mask when I'm not in front of the camera and at the hotel and be a good citizen, Mm -hmm. but still work. As states begin to open up in lawful and careful ways, if productions are allowed to occur, it's positive to be a part of something that's going to get people back to work and not allow us entirely uh, uh, to be cowed by this virus when that's safe. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I would assume they're still sort of figuring out when things will start production, or do you have a sense of in a couple of weeks, couple of months? No, we're starting to shoot on the 15th of June. So I don't like to get to set any um, later than a week before shooting. Uh, I just find that particularly as I get a bit older and more experienced with this, the less I know about playing characters and the more I need to prepare. And there's an extent to which you don't want to know what your character is going to do so that stuff can happen instantaneously in front of the camera while it's rolling. But the more prep work you do and the more comfortable you are inside of the skin of a character and the situations in which that character exists, the the more those ineffably immediate moments uh, can happen in front of the camera. I just find myself doing a lot more homework these days. So my son and I are going to get down there uh, well in advance of principal photography. Are you practicing mixing drinks and chopping meat in this time? I've I've just started doing that, but mostly what I'm doing is learning the script and uh, this very difficult dialect. The Norwegian dialect is a difficult one I'm finding to get right. Well, let's talk about one of your recent projects, which is Watchmen. You return to your roots a bit in playing this character. You grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the show is set. How much did you know about the 1921 massacre growing up? Since you put it that way, with the when growing up at the end, uh, I've got to answer honestly that I knew very little because it was certainly not advertised in Oklahoma history courses or American history courses. And it should have been featured in each. It was only when I went to college and interviewed uh, for a poetry class with an African-American professor, a wonderful poet named Michael Wright, 
that uh, I was asked about it. Was I aware that the worst race massacre, although he called it a race riot, in American history, it occurred in the city in which I was raised. And I I said, I well, I know there was a some unrest in the early 20s. And he said it was the worst race riot in American history. You should look into that. And of course I did. I also didn't get into his class, which was an advanced poetry class. And for some reason, as a freshman, I had the hubris to think that I belonged in a course with seniors, uh, and he disabused me of that notion, but he taught me about the history of my own city. And then I read about it. And so I was quite aware of the race massacre and had even spoken about it publicly on occasions when I was offered Watchmen, but I didn't know about it growing up because I wouldn't, I, I would, yeah, I would say it was concealed from us. As, as white kids growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Are there any people from there you knew that influenced Wade, your character, like that you modeled after in some form? Yes, uh, many. And some I could name and some I can't. When I was in high school, I used to drive to towns around Tulsa because these towns were easy to access. It's a very rural state. And so within 20, 30 minutes, you could be in a tiny town. People in Oklahoma are exceedingly friendly. I love my home state. I would take a tape recorder and and just interview people because I was so interested in the way people spoke in my state and the words they used that we're already in these small towns in such stark contrast to the way that we communicated in the city of Tulsa, and particularly the way I communicated in the city of Tulsa because I was a uh, upper-middle-class private school kid. And I just felt like I was in the middle of this wildly exotic place talking with these characters about fishing and growing peaches and... Uh, wheat and the Great Depression and their parents having been in the land run and trot lines and treble hooks and how to harrow a field and contour farming and just all this really abstruse stuff that was completely alien to me. And I didn't know it at the time because I was didn't think I was ever going to become an actor at that point. But I was taking all of it in out of interest, just keen interest, with no real purpose in mind, but for eventual actual practical use in characters like Wade. And because I met so many different people and recorded so many different people, each one has has helped to individuate the different characters from my area of the country that I've gotten to play. Now, some listening to this might say, oh, give me a break. Everybody you play sounds alike. (laughs) I don't agree. (laughs) Uh, uh, I think I've, I've worked hard to differentiate them. And I hope Wade is an example of that. 
1945. Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on the series Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Wade Tillman, who also goes by Looking Glass, wears a mask that covers his entire head. And not only that, but it also reflects the images around him, almost like he's not even there at times. What was the process like of acting with that thing on? And and did you find yourself internalizing some of that feeling of suffocation into the character? That's an interesting way of putting it. The suffocation is a useful way of looking at it in terms of interpreting the character. And I really like that word. It would have inhibited me in the playing of him because any actor will tell you that you want to make positive choices. And so I guess maybe the way I would put it is that there's an effort to overcome the suffocation rather than submitting to it. But it is a useful word. I found myself surprised by the power that the mask gave me. I've worked with masks in drama school a lot. The school I attended, we we had mask class for two full years. And what the purpose of that class was, was to take away your eyes and your expression, your visage, and force you to rely on voice and body, so sound and movement. The result was compensatory. You would, you would express more with your body, express more with your voice, with the look of your face taken from your arsenal. And so I thought, well, I'm sure that's going to be useful to me in playing Wade. But what I found in the playing of him was that when I had the mask on, it gave more power, not less, largely because the mask not only hid who I was and and allowed me anonymity, but also it reflected the scene partner back at him or her. And so it was somehow beyond obliquity into this reflective discomforting impact on on the person that with whom I was speaking. And I just found I had to do less in scenes, not more, less with my voice, less with my body. 
restraint had more power than amplifying expression of movement and expression of voice. And that was really a great lesson for me. I loved it. I, I, I found that when I put the mask on, I just had to do very little. And given a career in which I've been asked to do a lot with characters, you wouldn't call a lot of the characterizations that, that I've done subtle. And to, to get to play a character who finally was quite subtle, restrained, quiet, laconic, was really uh, a, a, an unexpected piece of luck in getting to play Wade. Did it take trial and error, though, to make that mask at least somewhat comfortable to act in? It did take trial and error because, you know, there was initially I was going to wear three different masks depending on the proximity of camera and lens size. And so in wide shots, they had this hardened plastic mask that had really been fitted to my face and neck and clavicle area. And it, it covered the eyes, everything. And the production wanted that, of course, because they felt like, well, at least in the wide shots, we won't have to spend on digital effects. Unfortunately, I couldn't work in it because my head movement was really restricted and I couldn't see my scene partners. And that's not Wade's reality. He can see the people with whom he's speaking. They can't see him. But part of acting is giving more to your scene partner than your scene partner receives from you. It's like hitting a tennis ball or a ping pong ball back and forth with somebody or dancing with somebody. You don't want to make it all about you and you want to be able to, to have give and take because your performance is only ever as good as your scene partner's. And I had to say, this is restricting my movement and it's restricting my ability to do my job. And luckily, the show was being run by Damon Lindelof and the pilot was being directed by Nikki Casal. And I couldn't, I could just spend this whole interview talking about how wonderful they are and were. Uh, And they understood. And so they said, all right, we're going to, we're going to lose this. Uh, We get it. And that was a real uh, breakthrough because if I'd had to do the whole season wearing that hard plastic mask that was completely opaque uh, from the inside out, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I would have been able to give to scene partners what I needed to give and therefore have them give back to me. Well, in... Episode five, we get a glimpse into the pre-looking glass days when it was just Wade Tillman, a teenager from Oklahoma, and we see how that sort of ill-timed trip to New Jersey in 1985 and like him experiencing the psychic blast from the squid attack has caused him to sort of live in fear ever since. And what I found interesting was that backstory came from Damon observing your performance along the way. Did you know they were approaching it that way, taking cues from you? I did to a degree. Now, when I took the role, I was told a different backstory. And I was informed this will probably but not necessarily be revealed in the season. And it was a pretty outrageous backstory. 
even more outrageous than what Damon ended up writing. But Damon is so good and he's so sensitive and he's so clever and adroit and fleet of foot as a writer that nothing I had done that was assuming this other backstory was out of step with the new backstory that he eventually manufactured. Because he'd been tailoring it to the work he and I were doing and the directors were doing with Wade up to that point, it kind of made even more sense, even though it wasn't based on the set of assumptions with which I'd been operating in building the character. Well, Watchmen is set three decades after the events of the original comic, and it's grappling with some very relevant topics, mainly racism in America. How did you tap into what you may have witnessed growing up, but also what you read and hear about today, what's going on in this country? Well, when I was growing up in Tulsa, racism was, was so pervasive, it was frankly casual. So I didn't experience any violent racism, thank God. But what I did experience was, I guess to quote, somewhat to quote Hannah Arendt, something more banal. A sort of everyday use of language and sets of assumptions about people of color that were just built in to the way that my peers and our teachers spoke about people of color. And Tulsa was, at that time, as segregated a city as there was in America. It literally had tracks, train tracks between North and South Tulsa, and you just didn't see people who weren't there for jobs south of those tracks. And you didn't see white people north of those tracks unless they were there for some social service purpose. But blacks lived in one area of town and whites lived in the other. And there was, just as I said, a casual racism that pervaded the, the, the culture there. Racism through and through. And that's how I grew up. I'm not proud of it. And it, it, it has taken a lot of undoing. I, I, I didn't grow up that way in my house. My parents weren't that way, but it was just all around you in, in the city. And again, friends, parents of friends and teachers even. To say that came into play in working on Watchmen would be an understatement. It was there constantly every day. Sadly, you know, I had a lot to, to draw on, sadly. And a, and, and a great group of people around me who were really sensitive to my reality and also their own reality growing up. Regina King, I mean, this is one of the most astonishing people I've ever met. She's just a complete class act and an extraordinary, extraordinarily giving talent. And this one uh, director on the show who directed the brilliant episode six, uh, Stephen Williams. You know, these are people of color who, given this subject matter, 
had every reason to look askance at not only people like me, but I grew up in Tulsa. And they collaborated with complete generosity, sensitivity, understanding, and love. Well, people are still holding out hope that a second season will happen, but Damon has said it's unlikely, at least with him at the helm. He conceived this first season to be self-contained. Are you disappointed? Would you be open to another season with someone else steering the ship? Would I be open to somebody else doing it, uh, steering the ship? I probably would because I can't imagine them pursuing that without Damon's blessing and probably also his hand in choosing who that person would be. But I'm fine with the show not continuing because I want to do whatever Damon wants. He's the boss. And if he feels this is best left as one season, as a limited series, then that's what's best. He's the, he's the author of this iteration of Watchmen. And I think he did an extraordinary job. And I wouldn't want to be a part of him being coerced into spoiling that. Fair enough. I want to talk a little bit about your backstory You studied classics at Brown University before going to Juilliard, and you were considering becoming a professor, right? Correct. So how did that path change, and and how would you say that time shaped you as a storyteller? First of all, I, I think I probably would have been a better high school Latin teacher than a professor. I don't think I would have been a great professor because I was, I took nine years of Latin altogether by the time I'd finished college. But I was also around others who'd taken nine years of Latin, and they were just at a much higher level than I was. And I, and I just thought, well, I'm not going to be great at this. And just at the, about the same time I was beginning to have these suspicions, my mother was visiting me uh, on the East Coast from Oklahoma, and she asked what I was going to be doing over the summer. And I said, well, I'm going to come back to Tulsa. And she said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a Latin teacher in high school or a Latin professor, a classicist. And I want to pursue a master's and maybe a PhD. And she said, that's always going to be there for you. But you did like acting in high school. Now is the time when you should be trying anything and and really taking risks. You don't not only do you not have a wife and children, you don't even have a girlfriend. So nobody's nobody's waiting around for you. Nobody's expecting anything out of you. And I'd love to have you back in Tulsa, but go and and do something risky this summer. Why don't you try to get into a summer theater? And I did. And I found that she'd been right. I I I not only did I love acting in high school, but I really enjoyed being around people who were taking it more seriously and who wanted to do it perhaps professionally. And I was also exposed that summer to Tom Stoppard and to Lanford Wilson and to this Noel Coward play uh, called Hay Fever. And particularly the Stoppard and the Lanford Wilson were not 
of the high school variety of drama. This was adult drama, off-Broadway stuff. And I just, it was like um, the first time I listened to Frank Zappa or Tom Waits when I was growing up in Tulsa. I just felt like there was this whole world out there I, I, I had no idea even existed. And I just went back to school and stuck with the classics degree, but decided I was going to pursue acting because I'd probably be better at it. Uh, and it was, if I really looked at it honestly, bringing me more joy than translating Ovid and Cicero. Thanks, Mom, setting you up on the right path. There's so many more questions I want to ask you, but we're winding down on time. Our last question comes from our previous guest, Jay Smith Cameron of Succession. What immediately comes to mind is I wonder what Tim Blank Nelson is thinking creatively about writing and characters and situations that result from this pandemic. What is cooking in the back of his mind about something he would want to creatively express about people in a lockdown? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a big project right now, which I've been working on for over a year. And when the virus happened, it suddenly all felt so trivial. And I was really despairing over that. And then I realized, well, that's kind of the point, that the virus has trivialized so much of what seemed important before it. And so I guess I've gone back, and a lot of my work during the last several months has been to put the virus on the narrative edge of what I was working on so that it's always this impending thing about to happen. It's referred to throughout the story by characters in a dismissive way. And then suddenly at the end, it's perceived as quite real. So I guess my answer to Jay's question, and, and that's quite a compliment coming from Jay, given not only her talent, but that of her husband, it's to reflect on what seemed so important before the virus. And, and and also to understand that actually it was important. You can only hope there's a lot of reflection during this time. Yes. Well, I don't know how to go from such a thoughtful answer like that to then asking you to now think of a question for our next guest. But I'm going to do it anyway. Our next guest will be Mandy Moore of This Is Us. And what question do you have to hurt does not have to be about the show, just an actor-to-actor question or person-to-person question. You're so adept at, at music and performance and also so clearly a whole and healthy person. Do you look at them in a compartmental way or is it all a coherent force that is Mandy Moore? Love it. We will ask her. I can't wait to hear her answer. Tim, well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Really, really great time. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Oh, you bet. It was my pleasure, and thanks for including me. That's it for the 16th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to Mandy Moore. And on this show, we're so used to 
you know, these deeply emotional human feelings and stories and not that you ever become immune to it, but I think we've sort of found a way to let things bounce off of us or to not carry it home. And this was one exception where I, I just, I felt that burden and that, that weight and that heaviness on me for the rest of the day. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Schaff. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.